Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David. Awesome show, uh, a little different type of show. We have Dr. Rick Doblin, who 30 years ago founded the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. And yes, for the last 30 years, he spent uh, studying the effects of psychedelics and cannabis on patients for PTSD uh, and a whole sorts of other different types of research. He is a wealth of knowledge on a number of topics, but particularly on why research in cannabis and as an extension on MDMA and other psychedelics has been so held up. It's a fascinating discussion. He's absolutely brilliant and engaging. You're gonna love it. I learned a ton. You're gonna learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, this is a conversation I've been super excited. Producer Eric has been super excited to have you on the show for some time. Uh, but let's get you started just on an easy one. Uh, what? <laughs> What's my name? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty close, pretty close. Okay. But what is MAPS? <laughs> MAPS is a nonprofit pharmaceutical company focused on developing psychedelics and marijuana into um, regulatory approved prescription medicines around. The... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bless you. Um, yeah, around the world. And so MAPS stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I founded it in 1986, 32 years ago, in April, actually. So exactly 32 years ago. And now we're doing research, uh, moving into phase three for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, uh, both in the U.S., Israel, and Canada. And we're negotiating with the European Medicines Agency. And we also have a $2.15 million grant from the state of Colorado for a marijuana PTSD study in Phoenix, Arizona, with uh, 76 veterans, uh, with the principal investigator being Dr. Sue Sisley. Yeah, very, very cool. I want to unpack a few of those things that you said. Uh, so let's start with 32 years ago. What, what, what was the environment like that caused you to want to do psychedelic research? Well, it was really 1972 where I decided I wanted to do psychedelic research and psychedelic therapy. That was when I was 18 years old. And that's where I was despairing of how crazy the world was and how destructive and violent it was. And I felt like um, the way in which people dehumanize others was um, potentially leading to another Holocaust or another uh, you know, World War III between the U.S. and Russia. And I felt that the psychedelic... Um, facilitated mystical experience of unity and connection had a lot of political implications and that that was really um, what I wanted to contribute to the world and that to try to bring back psychedelic research but also to be a psychedelic therapist and also for me to go through my own psychedelic psychotherapy so that was 72 but that was right after 1970 the Controlled Substances Act and the backlash against uh, the counterculture, against psychedelics, against marijuana. And that pretty much ended psychedelic research all over the world for a couple decades. So in 86, when I started MAPS, um, I'd learned about MDMA in 82, when it was both an underground 
quiet drug use and therapy under the code name Adam. And it was also just barely beginning to be used as a above ground sort of recreational drug under the name ecstasy. So it was pretty clear that it was going to be doomed. This was in the Nancy Reagan, just say no, and Ronald Reagan escalation of the drug war. And so during that time, um, I felt like, I, you know, I learned about LSD after the backlash, and I learned about MDMA before the backlash. So I got politically involved to try to protect therapeutic use of MDMA. And in 84, DEA moved to criminalize it, and I went to D.C. and filed a hearing request for an administrative law judge hearing with the DEA, which we got, and then we won. But uh, the judge said Schedule Three, meaning it should be available as a prescription medicine, uh, but the head of the DEA rejected the recommendation. And we sued uh, in the appeals courts a couple times and won, and then we lost. So it was pretty clear that there was no legal way to block the criminalization of the therapeutic use of MDMA, and that the only way to bring it back was through the FDA, through science, through medicine. And so that's where I started MAPS, uh, because at the time, no pharmaceutical companies were willing to invest in this area of research. The National Institute of Mental Health and NIDA were not, the National Institute on Drug Abuse were not willing to invest in this research. No major foundations were willing to invest. And research was still blocked. So when I started MAPS in 86, um, what I didn't realize, first off, is that no drug had ever been made into a medicine by a nonprofit. Um, that didn't happen until 1999. And that was the abortion pill RU46, funded by Rockefellers, Buffets, and Pritzkers. And what I, what I was able to do we had um, five different applications to the FDA, all rejected. But starting in 1990, things changed at the FDA. New people took over the regulation of research with Schedule One drugs, and they were willing to put science before politics. So that's what opened things up. And then in 92, we got the first permission for the Phase One dose response safety study with MDMA. Wow. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the how you balance these different drugs because i know you've done a lot of work with mdma you certainly have a, a lot of research with cannabis but it incorporates a lot of different drugs there, there's more that you study as well correct yeah we started the first study with lsd in over 35 years we um, have done observational studies with ibogaine in the treatment of opiate addiction in new zealand and mexico um, Oops. Oops, let me... They want you. They need you all the time. Okay. Um, and we've done um, research, um, attempted at least, with cannabis um, since 1992. Um, so I guess it's a say how we balance it all out. We're making so much progress with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, plus it's the most gentle of all the psychedelics, that that's become our top priority. And also because there's such a national crisis about veterans with PTSD. And that's actually how we were able to start the marijuana study, was focusing on veterans with PTSD. So it's really um, both where there's opportunities, where there are donors willing to support our research. And then um, some of the, a lot of the times we try to do the hardest things rather than the easiest things. So we've been working 
since 1999 to break the federal monopoly on the production of DEA licensed cannabis for FDA regulated research. And we've also been involved in lawsuits against the DEA, administrative law judge lawsuits, starting in 2005, which we won in 2007. And then DEA yet again rejected the recommendation. So um, I think there is a question about um, you know how we prioritize. But right now, because making MDMA into a medicine is so um, potentially likely to succeed, both in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere, um, we've raised roughly $26 million for phase three research with MDMA in the U.S. through the FDA. And with marijuana, because of the monopoly, there's no way for us to try to make marijuana into a medicine through the FDA unless we break this monopoly. So we're just doing the marijuana PTSD study in veterans, and that's basically our only um, cannabis study right now, as well as our political activity trying to end the monopoly. So I'm going to Washington on Thursday to meet with members of Congress. They're having a roundtable on veterans and cannabis. And we'll be talking about um, both what our study is and what we're learning from our study, but also um, the political efforts to try to end the monopoly. Senator Hatch and Senator Camilla Harris from California just sent a letter to Sessions saying, uh, Attorney General Sessions saying end the monopoly by August, which will have been two years since the DEA uh, published in the Federal Register that they were willing to license new private producers of cannabis. So it's kind of a strategic um, decision about what we do next based on opportunity, resources, and the political dynamics. Yeah, no, so fascinating, I mean, to be on the absolutely the front line uh, of that discussion. Um, give me a little taste of the results uh, of that study as you'll present them uh, when you go to Washington. Well, the way in which we have to do this study is um, it's a— What's called it? It's a double-blind study. There's four different conditions. One is uh, NIDA claims it's 12% THC and virtually no CBD. We've had it analyzed twice, and it was 9% THC. Um, another is 12% CBD and virtually no THC. Another is um, roughly 8% THC, 8% CBD, and then the other is a placebo, which is. Um, the plant washed in alcohol to take out the cannabinoids and terpenes. So we're not able to analyze the data or un unblind the study until the whole study is done. And that'll take us about another year. But what we can say is that so far there's been 55 people um, or 56 people that have been enrolled and um, 52 of them are um have completed the process or are still in the process, and only four of them have dropped out, um, some for logistic reasons. Um, only one dropped out because the cannabis uh, was more anxiety-provoking than helpful. So the safety profile looks really good from just what we can see so far, and there are substantial declines in PTSD symptoms in a lot of the people, but we can't say yet which group it's in, or if it's more in the cannabinoid groups, you know, than the placebo groups. Um, but I think the fact that we've been able to recruit so many veterans so far, and that it looks um, like people are continuing through the study 
and reporting many of them benefits that it, it's looking promising, but we don't really know yet until we uncover the data in about a year. So fascinating. Uh, the first thing that sort of comes to mind is that uh, of the strains that you mentioned that were part of the study, the THC levels seem very low compared to uh, what what I consume and what's consumed in the market. Why, why is that? Well, that's the result of the monopoly. When, when you have a government monopoly or when you really have any monopoly, um, they have no reason to innovate. They're not focused on quality. The producers who are producing for at the University of Mississippi for NIDA for decades and decades, you know, their focus was producing marijuana to show what's bad with it. And so they didn't really care about quality. Um, here, here's something that's absolutely astonishing. In 1998, the Home Office in England licensed GW Pharmaceuticals to grow marijuana, and their first product was 50% THC, 50% CBD, Sativex, which was sort of a spray under the tongue. And it was only um, two years ago that NIDA started offering CBD. I mean, way, way, way behind the times. And so they're not focused on producing quality. So I understand why they uh, why they may want the results to be skewed, I guess is a, a good way to put it. But it also is not accurate. You know, whatever data comes out of this study, um, it will be for someone that's smoking the equivalent of 1970s cannabis. So I, I guess if that helps the PTSD patients, terrific. But do you, are you concerned about the accuracy of that data? Well, I think the data is going to be accurate for what we get. The question you're... Um posing is really, you know, to what, how does it relate to what's available? Yeah. Is it relevant? I guess. Um, I think it's relevant. I, I think, well, first off, it's the only marijuana we can use. So we either had a choice of doing the study with that, um, what NIDA could send us or not doing research at all. Right. So of course we decided to do the study. Um, I, I think there, the state of Colorado, which gave us, you know, as I said, 2.15 million for the study, they also gave, um, another million plus to, uh, PhD Marcel Bond Miller to do surveys of PTSD patients in Colorado who are actually using product from state legal dispensaries, which often have THC, you know, two or three times the levels that we're getting. Um, assuming it's nine, that's 27%. That, that's pretty high, 27% THC. But they're using, yeah. um, you know, THC in the, in the 20% area. Yep. Um, and so that that is going to be an attempt to kind of learn more from the real world, what people are actually using. But I think our data will be extremely valuable. There's never been a controlled study of marijuana for PTSD and never been one that looked at THC versus CBD versus a combination versus placebo. So, you know, we're stuck with what we got, but um, we're hopeful that before the election in November, that uh, enough political pressure will build up on the Trump administration to force Attorney General Sessions to license private producers. Is that a prediction or a hope? Um, that's a prediction. I mean, again, take it for what it's worth, but there are some Republican senators, particularly Orrin Hatch and others, uh, Cory Gardner, uh, that are very interested in sort of helping um, develop a domestic industry. There, there was a great article in Bloomberg Businessweek a couple of weeks ago about our effort to break the monopoly 
the title of it was something like America is giving away a $30 billion industry by blocking domestic production. So uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, the uh, market cap is well over $3 billion. There's uh, Canopy Holdings in Canada that's uh, over several billion dollars in worth. And, you know, these are now companies that are licensed by their government, so they're federally legal. And we don't have a single situation like that in the U.S. I, should I explain. think what's, what's even worse than that is the large amounts of American investment that are going into Canada and other places. It's not as if it's all homegrown. It's that they've, they've attracted this, uh, this investment from around the world. That, that's the part that gets me. You know, that used to be the U.S. We were the leader in doing that, right? Our, our IP is the best in the world or has been for some time. So, yeah, no, we're completely seeding that. Uh, to the rest of the world, which is frustrating for me, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's what we hope will. So that's why it's um, a little bit more of a prediction than a hope, because we're talking about jobs. We're talking about money. Yeah. You know, I mean, this administration doesn't care about fairness, but uh, jobs and money, hopefully they'll care about. So it brings up kind of a uh, interesting extension to that question, which is, look, on paper, uh, economics, taxes, health, it seems very, very clear to me. And although there's more research required, uh, anecdotally, it's so obvious that cannabis should be legal and we should profit from it and people should use it as medicine, etc. Is the debate in Washington a political one or is it still a moral question? Um, I think morals have nothing to do with it. I mean, the morals are people are suffering and we should be doing research to find new ways to address suffering. So it's always been clear morally that that all, that the research should move forward. So it's a political question, and it's really Attorney General Sessions living in the 1960s. Uh, marijuana is used by bad people, and well, I suppose that's what I mean by by morals, right? Like, are there are there reasons? Um non-logical reasons you know that and that's how it appears to me right that yeah bad people smoke marijuana and you know it's the reefer and you're gonna go crazy and all these other hysteria propaganda that has been you know established over the years yeah i i mean i would um say for sure there's but politics is also based on morality and um, not logical so either way we want to say it, it's based on old prejudices that are dying out. And Sessions is a dinosaur who's one of the few people in positions of power that still has that prejudice against marijuana. So it's in polls, it's, um, you know, over 85% or so of the American public is in favor of uh, exploring the medical use of marijuana. Yeah. So it's really just... Um, symbolic politics on the part of Attorney General Sessions that's changing. And I think what's going to change it, though, is not these moral arguments about helping patients. It's about uh, it's going to be about jobs and money, I think, that will do it. Oh, you have to speak the Republican language, right? You have to give them something that they can say and feel good about. And I totally agree with you. Um, let's get back to PTSD for a second here. Uh, give me sort of a, a scope of the problem. You know, what, what's the scale of PTSD um, in veterans or, or in other people, non, non-veteran PTSD patients? Yes. Well, it's very hard to get latest statistics out of the Veterans Administration. 
so what I'm going to share with you is statistics that the VA put out in June 30th, 2016. So this is almost two years ago. 868,000 veterans were receiving disability payments for PTSD. And the last time the VA put out numbers and congressional testimony was in 2004, where it was 20,000 average disability payment per year per veteran receiving disability for PTSD. So using 2004 numbers, that's roughly $17 billion a year that the VA is paying for vets with PTSD. Plus there was another roughly 575,000 veterans who are receiving disability payments for other mental health related issues, including um, depression and anxiety. Things that are adjacent to PTSD. Basically. Yeah, so what that suggests is that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 29 billion a year that is being put out in disability payments by the VA for mental health related issues, some of which cannabis can be helpful for. The other part though is that there's way more people with PTSD from uh, childhood sexual abuse, sexual assault as an adult, accidents, natural disasters. So the scope of the problem of PTSD is enormous. And if you start looking at lower levels of PTSD like trauma, I mean, just living in this world and reading the news is uh, traumatizing. You know, it, it doesn't feel like... Um, that people are safe, worries about terrorism, worries about the environment, you know, just being sympathetic with refugees. So there's an enormous burden of lower level trauma that everybody practically is dealing with to one degree or another, which uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy could help or possibly, you know, cannabis as well. So, and the currently available medications, um, two SSRIs, Zoloft and Paxil, uh, there's just an estimate put out by Dr. John Crystal and, at Yale that only about 20% of the vets who receive these medications get sufficient help from them. So there are non-drug psychotherapies that work, and they tend to work even better than the, the pills. But even they leave a substantial number of people um, Still suffering what, what from of, major what PTSD. What kind of therapies? What kind of non? Uh, uh, non well, there's three main therapies used by the VA and used in the treatment of PTSD. Um, or four, maybe we could say. One of them is called. Oh, I'm sorry for that phone call in the background. No worries. Uh, okay, so um, one of them is called prolonged exposure, which means that you just repeat the trauma over and over. You expose yourself on a prolonged basis to the trauma until you sort of become numb to it um, and then it no longer bothers you. And we're going to be doing research with one of the main um, scientists involved in prolonged exposure, combining MDMA with prolonged exposure to see if it works better. There's another treatment that's called cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, sometimes, for example, somebody that's been attacked by somebody in a dark alley wearing a red hat Every time they see a red hat, they're like panicked again. And so cognitive behavioral is kind of to train people that the red hat doesn't always symbolize that the triggers for your PTSD may not be accurate. And so it's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's another one called cognitive processing therapy. 
that's a little bit more in, in, uh, intellectual than behavioral. Then there's also what's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization. Um, so there, there are different non-drug psychotherapies, and they do help some people. They tend to help the less severe cases more than the severe cases. I see. So if you have PTSD, you should start with one of these non-drug options. And if that doesn't work for you, um, then, then talk about the ways that cannabis can help PTSD and the ways that MDMA. And I understand that the research isn't finished, um, but from what you know today. Okay. Well, and also there's a lot of anecdotal reports as well. Yeah. So what, what we know is that um, cannabis helps people sleep through the night better. And so a lot of people with PTSD have nightmares and that disturbs their sleep and makes it very difficult for them to function even during the day. So cannabis helps people sleep and that's probably the main way that people talk about it as beneficial for PTSD. Um, it also, though, focuses people a little bit more on the present uh, rather than on the past. So um, what we're finding is that the people in the study do use it during the day as well as before they go to sleep. Um, it, it helps to lift the mood a little bit, um, but it doesn't solve the core problem. And so people that use cannabis for PTSD tend to use it on a, a very frequent basis, often daily. And if they stop using it, the problems come back. So it's somewhat similar to the SSRIs. It's a band-aid, sort of a band-aid. Yeah, yes. but it can be profoundly helpful. Um, so the work with MDMA for PTSD. Well, the other question I had about cannabis, sure. sorry, sorry to cut you off, is, is um, I also find that um, cannabis... Uh, you know, prevents me from remembering my dreams largely. Yeah, yeah. Um, how important is that? That's got to be incredibly important to a PTSD patient, right? Um, yeah, I think that's actually sad. You know, I, I stopped smoking for 30 days in order to um, try to get uh, health insurance one time. Um, actually, life insurance uh, for MAPS in case I died or something. And so I um, stopped for 30 days smoking. So I passed the drug test and I didn't feel like I was smoke. I was thinking any clearer. I didn't think like my memory was better, but the one side effect that I noticed was that I started um, remembering more of my dreams and I loved that. And I thought that was really sad. So the one thing that is sad about cannabis is that uh, it does suppress dream recall. Uh, when I talked to my daughter who was about 10 at the time and explained what was going on, she was like, well, maybe it's like when you smoke, you're like dreaming during the day. And so you don't need to dream at night. And I think there may be something to that, the kind of different processing that you go through. But for people that have nightmares, not remembering their nightmares is very, very important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've experienced it. Like if I take a trip to somewhere where you just can't bring cannabis, you know, some places in Africa or the Middle East or whatever. And yeah, I have very vivid dreams uh maybe by night three or four which is kind of a cool bonus to traveling somewhere i guess but yeah i've often wondered like um it would be really cool if i had more dreams and somehow the cannabis enhanced that um but anyway i guess that's that's a one negative side effect um okay then you were going into mdma and how uh, specifically that can help a ptsd patient yeah so i think what we really need to first off describe is what our therapeutic approach is with mdma so it's 40 hours of therapy with a male-female co-therapist team, 
And those 40 hours are set up 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, and then three day-long eight-hour MDMA sessions, roughly one month apart. So it's about a three-and-a-half, four-month process of therapy, and during which people get MDMA only three times. And the goal of this is to end up with people no longer needing uh, medication. That, And so how it works is that the non-drug psychotherapy sessions are for preparation and for integration. And the psychotherapy sessions itself with MDMA are... Um, MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala, the fear processing center of the brain. It enhances activity in the frontal cortex where you put things in association. It increases the connection between the hippocampus and the amygdala to facilitate transmission from um, short-term to long-term memory storage. And it also um, stimulates oxytocin and prolactin, uh, hormones of nurturing and bonding, and it also, uh, the neurotransmitter serotonin, uh, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So what basically it does is it gives people what has been called an optimal window of arousal, meaning with PTSD, people often are hypersensitive, where I described before, triggers constantly making them think that something's happening or about to happen, or they become emotionally numb in order to not not feel painful, those things, yeah. Painful mm-hmm. emotions. And so what has happened is that um, when MDMA is administered to a PTSD patient, um, they are more um, able to look at painful emotions without feeling so frightened. And I think it reduced by the reduction of the activity in the amygdala, you can bring back emotionally charged material and review it and also come to um, process it in a way, often with uh, understanding for what happened. Um, People's memories are enhanced under MDMA, so they remember more of the trauma than ever before. But they're looking at the trauma from a position of safety and they're realizing that it was in the past and it's not always about to happen. And so what basically goes on is called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. So the MDMA sort of reduces the fear. You look at this emotion and the the way that memory works is that the, the emotion is attached to the incident. So it's called episodic memory and emotional memory. And what you're able to do by looking at the episodic memory from a position of safety, when you reconsolidate the memory, you've basically replaced the feeling of peacefulness uh, that you have from uh, looking at it under MDMA. That replaces the feeling of fear connected to that memory that previously caused the PTSD. And so then the next time people remember this incident when they're off of MDMA, they remember it again with an emotional connection, more of peacefulness and safety, and it's more in the past than always about to happen. And so, of course, you need to have those experiences. You need to integrate them and and um, make that memory stronger and, and be able to think about 
the trauma in a way that's um, it's so helpful under MDMA to bring things to memory that have been so painful that they were suppressed so much, but that they affect people's outlooks in an unconscious way. And so when you bring these things to consciousness and then you process it while you're feeling safe, um, what we find is that one year after the last MDMA session, two-thirds of the 107 people in our study no longer have PTSD. Wow. Wow. That is remarkable and so fascinating, uh, but sounds kind of scary. Honestly, like I'm, I'm going to take some MDMA and I'm going to confront all these deep, dark secrets or, or traumas about myself. I mean, um, have you had negative reactions to this as well? I mean, it, it can't have all gone perfectly, correct? Well, for sure. Yeah. No, again, yeah, nothing works for everybody. Everything has side effects. And there, I, I think this is actually what you just pointed out, you know, that it does require courage to confront the past pain. Totally. Yeah. That that's why I think cannabis for PTSD is a perfectly reasonable option for people that, you know, it sort of suppresses symptoms, but it doesn't make you confront them. So the disadvantage, of course, is that you, you're always needing to suppress the symptoms. And it's a, it should be a personal choice for people whether they want to do that kind of confrontation. Many of, several of the vets in our study and others said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy because it really was um, a challenge for people. Wow. But at the same time, um, it's not as scary as it seems because of the MDMA. And right. people in the, our therapy do end up um, able to process things in a much smoother way. But there, there have been a few people that what came up was so scary to them that they decided they would rather drop out of the study than continue. Mm. And so that does happen to a, a relatively small percentage of people. But it, it, the MDMA isn't the treatment. It's really MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in combination. But the therapists are not the ones that are doing the work. Primarily, it's the patient. So, you know, when we think of a traditional pharmaceutical drug, here's the drug, the drug's going to do the work, you don't have to do anything but pop the pill. It's somewhat similar for cannabis for PTSD. But with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, really people are responsible for healing themselves. And that's by having the courage to take a look at um, the traumatic incidents. Uh, no, understood. Um, how about the combination of the two, MDMA and cannabis for PTSD? What, what do we know about that? Well, under uh, we, we do require people in the MDMA study to stop using cannabis. Okay. Why uh, is that? Well, we, we want to look at one intervention at a time. So that's more for scientific reasons. Yeah, just so you get cl the cleanest data possible. Uh, but yeah. also... You know, during the actual MDMA sessions, um, administering cannabis at the same time is uh, not helpful. In fact, it, it will blunt the effect of MDMA. So MDMA is, is profound, affects the emotions. Um, marijuana cannabis is more of a mental thing, and it's more cognitive, and it kind of muddies the waters in a way. Uh, you know, sometimes people out in the world will take MDMA and then near the end of the day smoke cannabis to kind of bring it back. Mm 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I, I... So that that can work, um, but the co-administration at the same time, um, we definitely think is not helpful. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, that that makes good sense to me. Uh, cannabis sort of has a way of, uh, I don't know, numbing a lot of a lot of things, right? It sort of, it sort of so that make that makes yeah. good sense. I mean, it also um, can heighten things too. I mean, so. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you know, and there's different strains of cannabis. I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to figure out is, you know, how do people react to uh, THC versus CBD with with PTSD? Is one better than the other? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on CBD and PTSD? How, how effective is that? Well, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, again, we have not uncovered the blind, so we don't really know. Right. Um, my guess is that it'll be the um, combination THC-CBD that does the best. Mm-hmm. But that's just a guess. I don't, I don't really know. Well, I think there's there's other research that suggests that sort of entourage effect uh, is the most helpful when, when you have some amount of THC with, with the CBD. Um, these studies also sound pretty expensive. Uh, uh, I have a note here. You've raised $26 million from donors for these MDMA studies. Talk about that raise a little bit. I, how do you even begin raising that kind of money for something like this? Well, very diligently, and it's a massive effort for multiple different people. Um, but it started out actually about five years ago when Shauna Haley, who was on our board of directors, um, died at age 62. He was a tech wizard and left us $5.5 million as a bequest. And we decided to save roughly $5 million of that for phase three. Um, then Dr. Bronner's, uh, David Bronner is on our board of directors. And Dr. Bronner's soap company gives away a lot of money um, for a whole range of causes. Um, and they pledged um, half a million a year, excuse me, a million a year for five years. Um, so then... We started moving forward with making, you know, negotiations with FDA. So uh, November 29th, 2016, we had the end of phase two meeting. In July of 2017, um, we completed negotiations with FDA about the design of the phase three studies um, in this process called special protocol assessment process. And then in August uh, 15th, FDA declared MDMA a breakthrough therapy. And so... We had the best possible agreements with FDA going forward. Um, and then in October, it was very frustrating of 2017, is I got the word both from the Veterans Administration and from the National Institute of Mental Health that they would not be providing any funding for our phase three research. Hmm. Wow. So Why? That, that was, um, well, the VA politically, they didn't think they could do it. The NIMH says now they don't do phase three research. They want to see mechanism of action research. And the FDA doesn't require mechanism of action information to approve a drug. They just um, require proof of safety and efficacy. So NIMH wasn't doing it. So then at first I was disappointed, but then I thought, well, you know, in a way this is good because now we'll be able to say one day that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD is a gift to the world from the psychedelic community. And we started then trying to raise the additional funds that we needed. But what really happened in a massively positive way was in December when the cryptocurrency community started getting involved. 
Okay. And so there was a fellow named Pine who started what's called the Pineapple Fund. And he had uh, borderline personality disorder, a little bit of depression. Um, he went for therapy and he decided to go for ketamine therapy. And under the influence of ketamine, he had a vision. The vision was that the way out of uh, depression and borderline personality disorder was to help other people. And so he had made lots of money on bitcoins. And he announced the Pineapple Fund as a vehicle to give away $86 million worth of bitcoins. Wow. So actually, it was 5,600 or something like that bitcoins he was going to give away. Um, bitcoins, of course, went down. Yeah, at what, at what price? At what price? Yeah, but so he gave away a fixed amount of bitcoins that ended up being worth about $58 million. Yeah. And he gave us $5 million. Wow. And others matched it. We had a $4 million matching grant. We got an initial million dollars, then a $4 million matching grant. Incredible. And so wow. it was through a combination of the psychedelic community, family foundations, and cryptocurrency people that we were able to raise this $26 million. Now, we still need to raise five more million for Europe to bring MDMA to Europe. Um, we've shipped MDMA to Brazil. Uh, we really want to go global. And um, it's, it's just been incredibly reassuring to see how people are really stepping up. And they recognize that the traditional sources of funding from pharmaceutical companies to governments to major foundations are just not there when it comes to research with psychedelics and marijuana. And yep. we've had to find alternative sources. And that's been one of my main work has been fundraising. But it's because we've had um, pioneers like uh, Ashana Haley and David Bronner, uh, and then that we've had these incredible agreements with FDA so that people can see it's really solid what we're doing. And then we've been able to go out to the world and say, help us. And I think it's also been crucial that we're doing this in a nonprofit context. Such a cool story. Um, yeah, I was going to say, particularly in a nonprofit context. I mean, I, a lot of these things that you've said, these breakthroughs, I can see have huge market value, uh, but cool that people are putting in this amount of money um, really just to help people. <laughs> what, what, what a novel idea in the world. Um, uh What's the end goal here? I mean, uh, not yeah. necessarily just with one study, but with maps as a whole. I mean, what gets you out of bed every day? Why, why do you do this? Well, the end goal is um, the survival of humanity on this planet. And it's at risk with global warming, with nuclear weaponry. So for me, the end goal is the mainstreaming of psychedelics and marijuana. Um, thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics throughout the United States and the rest of the world, initially for patients, but eventually where family members of patients can go for treatment, but also where other individuals, anybody could go, and where people would have experiences with psychedelics that would be, you know, to some extent, uh, spiritual, mystical, not necessarily, you know, you see a God figure telling you the truth, but that we recognize that we're all part of this bigger whole. We're not these isolated individuals. And that you have this sense of connection and unity that breaks down the barriers, that runs deeper than our nationality, our race, our gender, our socioeconomic status, um, religion, anything like that. And so I think for me, the end goal is massive upgrade 
of um, human mental health. You know, Albert Einstein said our um, technology has exceeded our humanity. And I think that's exactly where we're at. And so we need to accelerate our humanity. And for thousands of years, psychedelics have been used for that purpose. And so the end goal for me is really medicalization, thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics, and then a whole reevaluation of prohibition as a failed policy and moving towards um, regulated access in a um, marketplace where people are able uh, to really think about it in terms of human rights, the human right to explore your own consciousness. But medicalization is the, the doorway and the main next step. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that everybody in their life should have uh, at least a couple experiences, one at least with psychedelics, because in my experience, exactly what you described happened. I felt a, a better connection with the world around me and, and felt uh, sort of small in the in the uh, span of time and space and sort of got gained a, a tremendous amount of perspective there. Uh, some would even call that an enlightenment. Um, is that the way you describe it? Is, is there a is there a false or real enlightenment there? Um, well, I guess that's a big question. You know, what's false or real <laughs> enlightenment? Yeah. Um, I think there have been experiments starting in 1962, the Good Friday experiment that was done at Boston University Chapel. It was Harvard. Um, psychologist Timothy Leary was the faculty sponsor for Walter Pankey, who was a doctor and a minister, and that was really looking at whether psychedelics could facilitate a mystical experience in people who were divinity students in a religious chapel during Good Friday. But the questionnaire about the mystical experience had nothing to do about Jesus or God figures. It was more about sort of the abstracted elements of a mystical experience as reported by mystics throughout the ages from all different religions. And what the conclusion was is that um, it looked like it did. Nine out of the 20 people had a mystical experience. Eight out of those nine had the psilocybin. And it seemed to match up with classic descriptions of mystical experience that, that came without drugs. But from the perspective of the mystical literature and religion, the, the ultimate test is called the fruits test. What does the experience mean in your life? Does it help you? Does it change your mood? Does it change your attitude towards death? Does it make you more compassionate? And so I did a 25-year follow-up to the Good Friday experiment and found that people still valued it uh, 25 years later. And this was, um, you know, 62 was the experiment. I did this in 87. So still at the time of the massive escalation of the drug war, at a time where people had every incentive to deny the validity of the experience, and these people had also, some of them had non-drug as well as drug mystical experiences to compare. And so I think what, what we can say is that it seems like these are genuine experiences. They're not illusions. Right. Um, the scientists that sort of develop, helped develop the basis for the questionnaire, his uh, name was W.T. Stace. And one of his theories was called the theory of causal indifference. And what that means is that the mystical experience is evaluated on the basis of the content, not on the basis of the cause. 
So the theory of causal indifference. So some people get it through fasting. Some people through get it through pain, through flagellation and transcendence through pain. Some people get it through meditation, some through making love, some through walking in nature, some through what's called gratuitous grace. It just sort of comes upon you. But you don't evaluate it on the basis of the cause. Now, fundamentalists in different religions will tell you that if it's not connected to their particular historical figures, then it's false. And so I, I do think that uh, mysticism, the mystical experience is the antidote to fundamentalism. And that the mystics of the different religions are more have more in common with mystics of other religions than they do with the fundamentalists in their own religion. So wow. I think really uh, when we switch back to therapy studies and scientific studies, there's been new research at Johns Hopkins, at NYU, with psilocybin for depression, and they're taking people who are not divinity students in a scientific hospital setting on an individual basis, and they're still having mystical experiences. And these mystical experiences seem correlated with therapeutic outcome for depression and loss of fear of death, for anxiety about life-threatening illnesses, cancer. So... I think the practical impact is positive and, you know, fundamentalists will argue that these are pseudo-religion and, you know, it's hard to uh, solve that debate, but I would just say that from my perspective, what really matters is outcomes or from the religious perspective, what really matters is the fruits. And it seems like these experiences have a lot of benefits. So however you can get there, um, it doesn't really matter as long as you get there. Yeah, and I, I think so that when we talk about you know MDMA for PTSD, for example, it's three sessions, and then hopefully people are um, able to go forward without it. So in a way, we're saying that the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is like a non-drug approach. The goal is not to have people take daily drugs and but to, to sort of do deep work so they don't need it, need drugs at all. Similarly, psychedelics for spiritual purposes, for mystical purposes, um, they often open a doorway for people to have those experiences on their own without drugs. And so I think that's a really important point too, is that these are uh, can be catalysts. There, there's some studies that have just been completed in Switzerland with lifelong meditators. Zen meditators, which has been traditionally anti-drug. But now what they're finding is lifelong meditators, when they do psilocybin in a meditation retreat, experience deeper levels of meditation and spirituality than they have before. And that then they can learn how to um, replicate those states of consciousness easier afterwards without having to use the psilocybin anymore. So these are like catalysts. And so I think that we'll find that over time, you know, psychedelics are really going to be used in spiritual traditions as intermittent, once a decade catalysts or so, or, you know, any number of different kind of uh, approaches. But it certainly seems to me that thousands of years of religious use of psychedelics suggest that they have genuine religious potential. Wow. Yeah, no, fascinating. I think it begs the question, um, how much should regular, everyday people uh, incorporate psychedelics into their life? 
how much re- regular everyday people. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have a traumatic PTSD experience, if you're not trying to reach a higher level of religious, uh, you know, profoundness, uh, just everyday people, is it something that that they should participate with? Um, I I think it's an option that should be available. I mean, when we talk about everyday people, a lot of them don't want to be criminals. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. want to break the law. And so that, I think, is one of the reasons why we need to make this more legally accessible. Um, but I think it's up for every individual. I mean, it's not for me to say they should or they shouldn't. And it's not for the government to say that they shouldn't. Well, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Um, I guess I just meant from a sort of health or wellness perspective, uh, laws aside. And you, you've you've studied it a good portion of your life, obviously a proponent. Is this should this be used outside the the scope of medicine? Um, unquestionably, yes. I mean, again, we we need to think about what we mean by freedom here in America and elsewhere around the world. So we have the freedom of the press, the freedom of the assembly, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion. All of those you could think about as the freedom of thought, and that should imply the freedom to explore one's mind with whatever catalysts one wants. You know, you go to a movie and you have thoughts and emotions that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, You can take psychedelics and have thoughts and emotions you wouldn't have otherwise. And then what do you do about bringing that back into your daily life? So I think those are choices that people should have available to them, that it's a massive fundamental violation of human rights, the way these drugs are prohibited, that it's a historical aberration in that most of the history of the world, these drugs have been available. And that, again, it gets back to politics and the criminal justice system and the focus on oppressing minorities that drives the drug war. So, But, but I think for everyday people, um, you know, what, one, once they can see these psychedelic clinics and they see people getting helped, you know, this doesn't turn everybody into hippies and it doesn't turn everybody into, I'm going to drop out and go, you know, grow soybeans and you know, become an organic farmer or, you know, I think most people that have used psychedelics um, stay in their lives and find them enriched, but they're still participating in the culture. And and so I, I think what we're trying to say basically is that these are not um, counterculture drugs. These are drugs that are um, to be integrated into the mainstream culture for everyday people and that, that they'll benefit tremendously if they're available. Wow. Uh, so well said there. Uh, I think that's as good a place to wrap up as any. Dr. Doblin, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Brandon, my, my pleasure. Thank yeah. you for helping us get the word out because as much as I you know, am focused on science and we're spending, you know, as I said, uh, $26 billion on phase three for FDA, what's crucial is public education because the fears in the public that were generated starting in the 60s you know, suppress this field for many, many decades. And so now um, we're definitely prioritizing opportunities for public education. I'm really grateful for the opportunity you've created here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there some way that our audience can help you? Um, is there, you know, donors or are you looking to hire anyone? You know, how, how can we help? Well, first off, MAPS, M-A-P-S, MAPS.org. Go to our website. Uh, donations are what we are based on. So that would be very helpful. Uh, as I said, we're trying to raise $5 million for Europe. Uh, 
Um, and can you donate small amounts or? Oh you know, yeah, for sure. In fact, we have thousands of donors. I mean, I think it's uh, forty dollars, forty-five dollars. So you get our bulletin three times a year that we'll mail to you. But go to maps.org. And I think the other thing that we're really wanting to get help with now is for people to pressure their members of Congress about ending the government monopoly on the production of cannabis. It's been since 1968. It's time for it to end. It's almost 50 years. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, the, the government is doing such a disservice to its people. Increasingly, people want to use cannabis. They want to try cannabis. And we don't have the proper research and materials to do that research. It's a huge disservice to society. It's crazy to me. It's crazy. Yeah. So I think that that is, uh, in addition to donations and people going to the website and learning as much as they can, it's pressuring your members of Congress to pressure Attorney General Sessions to end the monopoly. Got it. Well said. And, uh, and thanks again. It really was great. And thanks, guys, for listening. We'll see you next time.